You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every month, the museum brings you interesting talks with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. So we are joined today by Kelsey Davenport, who is the Director for Nonproliferation Policy at the Arms Control Association, where she provides research and analysis on the nuclear and missile programs in Iran, North Korea, India, and Pakistan, and on nuclear security issues. Kelsey also reports on developments in these areas for arms control today. She joined the Arms Control Association in August 2011 as the Herbert Scoville Jr. Peace Fellow. Prior to coming to the Arms Control Association, Kelsey worked for a think tank in Jerusalem researching regional security issues and tracked two diplomatic negotiations. She holds a master's degree in peace studies from the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies at the University of Notre Dame. And Kelsey graduated summa cum laude from Butler University with a BA in, Inter- BA in International Studies and Political Science. Classic overachiever. We like people <laughs> like this. Her areas of expertise are nuclear nonproliferation, nuclear and missile programs in Iran and North Korea, and nuclear security. Now, you may have heard her name or even seen her face, but she's been quoted in numerous outlets, including the Washington Post, the New York Times, Foreign Policy, Reuters, Christian Science Monitor, The Guardian, and many others. And she's also on TV from time to time, places including BBC, CNN International, Al Jazeera, Voice of America, and many others. Recently, actually March 31st, I believe, you were the co-author of a Bulletin of Atomic Scientists article, Keeping Tabs on Nuclear Security Commitments, uh, which I found absolutely fascinating. Um, so welcome, Kelsey. Thank you for taking the time to be here at the International Spy Museum. Thank you very much for having me. So you're, you came to the Arms Control Association uh, as a fellow, named after a very interesting man. Let's start, let's start talking about what Pete Scoville, uh, because some people listening to this may actually have heard of him because he was, for a time, at CIA doing science and technology intelligence for, for almost a decade. Uh, and he's really one of the original developers of the technology uh, designed to verify kind of arms control agreements and arms control treaties. Uh, it, it, he, to agree, he's a, a hero in the arms control world. Uh, is this someone that uh, you still look to, not you, maybe maybe even you, but the, the, the arms control community looks to 
as uh, someone to emulate. Certainly. I think Pete Scoville's legacy definitely lives on in the arms control community. Uh, and even in the more broader peace community, I did not come to Washington, D.C. In, intending to get involved in arms control. Uh, but through the fellowship, I began to see how important sound arms control policy, uh, particularly those verification elements that ensure that nuclear weapons are being dismantled properly, that nuclear weapons are not spreading, is incredibly important to safeguarding international security. So his legacy certainly certainly is important and definitely lives on. Let's start this conversation baby steps. The word, unfortunately, gets thrown around TV all the time, enrichment. And there is hysteria, uh, depending on which news channel you look, but even the ones that you would think would know a little bit better about this, that, oh my God, country X is enriching uranium. Uh, and, and if you know just some of the basics of this, that can be scary if it's at a certain level, but for most times, you can't make a bomb unless it gets to incredibly high levels. Can you talk a little bit about the, you don't have to give you the science behind the enrichment process, but the, that word doesn't mean a hell of a lot unless there's a number attached to it. Exactly. Uranium enrichment is, as, as you said, frequently seen as a very threatening word. But a number of countries are involved in uranium enrichment that we would never think are, are on the brink of nuclear weapons. There's uranium enrichment in, in Europe, in Germany. There's a uranium enrichment uh, through a consortium here in, in the United States. Uh, very peaceful programs uh, designed to actually provide fuel for civil nuclear power plants. Now, how enrichment works, it, it takes uh, the element uranium and it separates a type of uranium called uranium-235 from uranium-238. Uh, uranium-235 is, is what we call fissionable, uh, meaning that it will uh, produce the, the appropriate reaction to, to sustain a, a reaction that can be used for, for nuclear power plants. Now, most power reactors run on uranium that's enriched to less than 5%. Uh, and that's what you see a lot of countries like, like Germany, like the Netherlands, involved with. Uh, where enrichment becomes more, more uncertain is when it gets to higher levels. Uh, Weapons-grade uranium enrichment is above 90%. So you can see there there's a huge difference right. between 5% and 90%. 5% relatively common, safe, appropriate for power reactors, but that 90%, that's when you have a good indication that a country uh, may be considering nuclear weapons. It's, it's, it's a bit overkill, no pun intended, to have <laughs> <laughs> power plants running on 90% enriched uranium. Certainly. Um, well, and, and one of the other misunderstandings is that uranium is this very, very rare resource. And the fact that it's everywhere, it's just you're going to get uranium-238 everywhere. And, and not to get too inside baseball, but I believe the number is uh, for every chunk of uranium-238, like seven-tenths of 1% of that is uranium-235. So it's just a minuscule amount mm -hmm. And so you really have to do a lot to enrich uranium. Just very briefly, this is not something you can do in a chem lab at a university. This is You need massive amounts of power, massive amounts of resources to do a nuclear weapons program level of enri uranium enrichment. Certainly. Moving towards a nuclear weapons program with uranium enrichment, uh, as you said, requires a lot of material, it's time-consuming, and it's very expensive. Uh, 
you have to first start with obtaining the natural sort of uranium ore. And there are a number of countries that export this ore that have huge deposits, Kazakhstan, Australia, Niger. Uh, so you start with that ore, but then that's still in a, in a, like a powder rock form. Uh, to enrich it further, uh, using the most common technology now called the gas centrifuge, uh, you have to first uh, refine the ore, mill it, and turn it into a gas. And then you take that gas and you introduce it into the centrifuge machine. And the centrifuge machine, I would think of it as a, as a very long tube. And inside of that tube is a rotor that spins incredibly quickly. And it separates the uranium gas, uh, the, the uranium-235 in the gas from the uranium-238. Uh, the uranium-235 gas sort of goes to the top and then, then it can be collected. But that's just the first step in what's a very complex process then to move on to weaponization. You have to take that uranium gas, uh, enriched at this point to over 90%, and convert it into a solid form, usually uh, a sort of a metallic solid that then is weaponized. And that's putting an explosive package sort of around that warhead. Uh, and then you're close to having... Uh, a nuclear bomb that you can actually explode, but you still have to be able to deliver it. Right. Uh, and that's a whole separate system of designing a ballistic missile or developing you know, a, a, a bomb that you can drop from, from an aircraft. Uh, so a number of additional steps are beyond the, the uranium enrichment uh, make this a very complex process. Well, was, I mean, to do – to deliver a system, I mean, I was going to ask you about that because that's sort of the question with North Korea. Uh, to, to deliver a weapon, you have to miniaturize a weapon to be actually take it from point A to point B. I mean, some of these early bombs – I mean, our first bomb was this massive you know, the, the bomb that could barely be fit inside our largest plane – uh, and if you're going to put this on the tip of a missile, you have to bring it down to a level where it's 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 very small, and that's not particularly easy to do. Um, when it comes to enrichment, though, and this is something that it, it, when you deal with scientific things, and it goes back to even development of chemical weapons and biological weapons, is this idea of dual use, and that's, that makes things especially tricky because it's not like – you're building conventional munitions where there's only one purpose for C4 explosive. There's only one purpose for uh, conventional munitions. You're not making smart bombs that are giving you power plants. But nuclear power, just like chemicals and like biological things, is for civilian purposes and for military purposes. And everything that you need to develop a civilian nuclear power program is the exact same thing you need to develop a nuclear weapons program, at least as far as the bomb is concerned, just much, much more like we've talked about already. What problems does that present for arms control professionals, for intelligence professionals, this dual-use idea that it's that it's you're not gonna there's no red herring like, oh, country B has bought this device that's only used to make a nuclear bomb. No, it's it's everything used for all sub purposes. Yeah, tracking dual-use technology is certainly a challenge because not only are some of the components for a nuclear weapons program the same as for a nuclear power program, but many of the materials required have purposes in, in other industrial applications. Uh, 
there's a type of steel, for instance, called maragene steel that's usually used in centrifuges that has a lot of other industrial applications. Uh, an Iranian smuggler was caught trying to purchase that steel from the United States in 2012 by shipping it to China and saying that it was for carousel horses. So determining sort of the true intent of these materials can be extremely difficult. Uh, but what is good is that export controls, uh, because of the, the nature of the materials necessary, have an idea of what they're looking for. Uh, like I said, these types of steel, uh, carbon fiber, certain types of pumps uh, are generally indicative of of a nuclear program. And if a country is trying to buy these these items and they don't have an established nuclear power program, uh, that really starts to raise some eyebrows. So on one hand, the dual-use materials are difficult because they, they can be used for multiple applications. It doesn't mean a nuclear weapons program. But on the other hand, the import of these can kind of raise the first red flags that, that a country may have weapons intentions. During the Cold War, which is, is my period of history, um, there's a concept known as MAD, Mutually Assured Destruction. The, the idea was – that MAD centered around the concept of symmetrical proliferation, where it, it, proliferation was okay if both sides were doing it. Right? The United States had bombs. The Soviets had bombs. And you do see that dynamic to a degree with India and Pakistan, where there's a symmetrical proliferation. Each side's not going to start a nuclear war because they know the other side's got plenty of nukes. Does that still apply to the 21st century? Uh, and, and is the fear still asymmetrical proliferation? Is is the fear still that there will be one power within a region that has a weapon and nobody else does? Um, or, or is MAD still a concept that, that anyone should be paying attention to today? Well, I think what's different now than during the Cold War era is that the idea of non-state actors acquiring nuclear weapons is – is a is a real threat. Uh, I don't think that it's likely, but if a terrorist group were to acquire a nuclear weapon uh, and threaten to use it or use it, th the results would be devastating. So for the countries that have nuclear weapons, a certain amount of regional parity uh, and I think the established norm against nuclear weapons use uh, and sort of the idea of maintaining a stable deterrent uh, still holds. But what I find more concerning is the idea that a nuclear weapon could be stolen, it could be sold, or the material could be diverted uh, to a country that ha or, or a, t a terrorist group that has a, a malicious intent. At the, at the end of the Cold War, the big fear was the, the collapse of the Soviet Union and the widespread dis dispersion of Soviet nuclear weapons uh, was going to be a problem for counting and, and for, for maintaining complete control by the Russians or whomever of all this nuclear material. Has that problem been solved in the last 15 or so years, or is, is there still fear that there's still nuclear material floating around Uzbekistan or, or somewhere that can, like you talked about, a non-state actor can get their hands on something like that? I think that the international community is taking steps to mitigate that threat, but it certainly still is a problem. 
There is highly enriched uranium that could be used for weapons in Belarus. South Africa has a stockpile. There is plutonium, which is the other material that can be used for weapons uh, in Kazakhstan. Uh, that is uh, the remnants from an old reactor there that the, the Soviets used for, for obtaining material for nuclear weapons. Uh, what the United States and Russia have been doing since the end of the Cold War is trying to consolidate that material, uh, bring it back to usually Russia and the United States, and then dispose of it so it's, it's not a threat. Uh, however, there is still a lot of material that's not accounted for. Uh, a few years ago in Moldova, a smuggler was discovered with a kilogram of highly enriched uranium. Now, that's not nearly enough for a bomb, but the fact that a, a criminal group was able to obtain an entire kilogram of highly enriched uranium uh, is a real concern. I mean, and you certainly consider things like dirty bombs and other things that could be used from there. Um, how much impact did uh, or is, because it's still ongoing, is the Ukraine situation having on countries' willingness to disarm? I mean, Ukraine very famously agreed uh, in, in the mid-1990s to give up its nuclear weapons in, in, uh, in return uh, for an agreement from Russia and the United States that their sovereignty would be protected, would be honored by the Russians, protected by the United States. Clearly, that hasn't happened uh, and people from time to time bring up this argument that Ukraine would have been better off keeping their nukes and that nukes would have been a deterrent. Uh, is that having reverberations in the arms control community, that, that, that Ukraine situation? It certainly is an argument that we hear from those people who defend the idea of maintaining nuclear arsenals, of modernizing the U.S. arsenal. But I think for countries that have chosen to give up their nuclear weapons, uh, they stand by that decision as a stabilizing factor. Uh, I don't think that Ukraine having nuclear weapons would have made a great deal of difference in the case of a Crimea, because to have a nuclear deterrent, for that to be effective, uh, you have to be willing to use right. it. And they, have, they have to at least think that you're willing to use it, exactly, right? Exactly, yeah. exactly. And would Putin have thought that Ukraine was willing to <laughs> use nukes against it? I'm, I'm not sure. Well, you bring up an interesting point, because I think people would be surprised to know how many countries had a, at least a fledgling nuclear program at some point in the last 50 years and have given it up voluntarily. I mean, everything, South Africa, Brazil, Libya. I mean, the, the list is relatively long, and, and that does show that diplomacy and international pressure, and for some countries, they just decided it wasn't worth it. Yeah, certainly. Uh, a number of countries that we wouldn't think of today as pursuing nuclear weapons had fairly advanced programs. Sweden, for instance, uh, certainly did a, a number of, of experiments related to nuclear weapons development. Uh, South Korea pursued nuclear weapons. South Africa actually had nuclear weapons and then chose to dismantle them uh, when the apartheid regime was, was falling apart. That certainly shows the strength of the nonproliferation regime and that, that countries want to move away from relying on these weapons. I think that also helps put pressure on the countries with nuclear weapons to remember uh, that, that they have committed to disarm and eventually eliminate these weapons. Let's, let's get specific as to a couple countries that, that you know a lot about. Um, and we already kind of mentioned North Korea, but let's talk about there's in the news almost every day is, is rumors, and there's only almost only rumors from North Korea, 
about their delivery capabilities. I mean, North Korea certainly has some kind of a, a nuclear device. They, they had a couple fizzles in the past, but it looks like they may have had a successful test. But testing a nuke is very different than actually being able to put a weapon on target. But they seem to be getting better and better at their delivery capabilities. Is the fear that that this will – they're not nuking anybody anytime soon, I don't think. Uh, Kim Jong-un is a little nuts, but – relatively rational when it comes to the realization that we would turn North Korea into a parking lot uh, if, if he did anything like that. But is the fear, or and this can be actually be extended to the Iran question, is the fear of a regional arms race, if North Korea becomes a true nuclear power and the capability of delivering weapons, do you get Japan and South Korea and the Philippines and everybody else saying, we need a nuke now? Just like if Iran develops a nuclear weapon, do you get Saudi Arabia and Yemen and Iraq and others saying, well, now we need a nuke? Is that, is that one of the bigger, broader fears? But I, I argue usually against people like, don't worry. Even if they get one, it's not going to be an issue. They're not going to use it. But there is that broader argument of, oh, my God, they have one. Now we need one. I think that the North Korean case is more of a risk than the Iranian case right now. Uh, after the last North Korean nuclear test in February 2012, uh, two-thirds of the population of South Korea was interested in moving towards their own nuclear weapons program. Uh, Kim Jong-un is also an irrational actor. It is clear that he values regime stability and maintaining his, his grip on power. But North Korea tends to take provocative acts. And I think at one point they could go too far and, and elicit a response. Uh, so the, the roughly 10 to 12 nuclear warheads that they have certainly is, is a problem. That being said, I think it's important not to overestimate North Korea's nuclear capabilities. Uh, you have a better chance of seeing a perfect ball game in baseball than North Korea has of actually hitting a target <laughs> right on with one of its ballistic missiles. Uh, of course, if a ballistic missile has a nuclear warhead, it doesn't matter how close well, you are to the target. Horseshoes, hand grenades, it, and nuclear yes. weapons is <laughs> close, close is good enough. Yeah. But that that speaks to the fact that North Korea's technology is not not highly refined. North Korea claims now that it has an operational intercontinental ballistic missile that can hit the United States. This missile has never been tested. Uh, the United States tested the Atlas ICBM system 125 times before declaring it operational. So the idea that this missile can hit, hit the U.S. while carrying a warhead, I think, is not – there's a very, very low probability that that would actually happen. How much influence – does China have any more on the North Koreans? Especially, I mean, forget the politics side because you're, you're here to talk about on the nuclear weapons issue. I mean, how much influence? The Chinese have to realize that if North Korea does something stupid and a nuclear war begins, that China is going to be knee deep in it one way or another. That, it, 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 the United States doesn't have that that similarity. There, there's no, I mean, Israel perhaps, but we're not directly next to Israel. Uh, to where if a war breaks out, China is going to deal with the repercussions more than anyone else, perhaps. Yeah, certainly. I think the Chinese attitude towards North Korea is certainly changing. Uh, North Korea is no longer that sort of crazy cousin that China has to take care of and protect. Uh, 
there was a distinct change in North Korea or in China's attitude towards North Korea after the the fourth nuclear test. Uh, China came down quite hard on North Korea and actually took some steps to increase sanctions enforcement against uh, North Korea to try and to try and ensure that some of these dual use technologies are not streaming into North Korea in the same way they have in the past. That being said, China could still do more. One of the most significant export control issues right now is with China uh, and goods that flow through China to places like North Korea or Iran that can be used for for ballistic missile programs or or nuclear programs uh, because China does not always exercise the, the, the vigilance that it should in terms of ensuring that that shipments don't just filter through China to, to other places. I had brought up India and Pakistan as an example of a symmetrical proliferation dynamic, uh, but they're still the only uh, two countries that have actually fought a war as nuclear powers. They use nuclear weapons, but in, in 99, they, they're the last countries that actually fought a full-fledged war as being a nuclear power. And, and there's a lot of people who, uh, when they're wargaming World War III, look at it as being uh, started by an exchange in India-Pakistan. And you, as an expert uh, in this field, how worried should we be? Uh, I guess there's a multi, there's a multi, this is a multi-pronged question. One is how worried should we be about a, a, a state versus state war between India and Pakistan? And second part of that, how worried should we be about the Pakistani nuclear weapons program being uh, diverted to a wing of ISI or a wing of the Pakistani military that – doesn't agree with Western principles, let's say, has more of a radical fundamentalist point of view, and then that being filtered down to either an Al-Qaeda or an ISIS or someone like that? Well, to take your first question first, if there were to be a nuclear exchange between states, I think India and Pakistan is certainly the most likely arena for that. One of the developments that worries me the most is that Pakistan is moving towards very short-range tactical missiles that can deliver nuclear warheads. Uh, these are missiles with ranges of you know, perhaps 60 kilometers. Uh, and the idea behind Pakistan's sort of thought in developing these short-range missiles is that it would counter India's increasingly growing conventional right. capability. Now, putting command and control of these missiles in the field with Pakistani commanders, uh, while a conflict is escalating with India, I think poses a significant risk because of the, if the fog of war takes over and victory is seen as the ultimate the ultimate goal, then I think it becomes slightly easier to decide to, to, to pull the trigger on a nuclear weapon. Well, the amazing thing is that these are not new concepts. The battlefield nuclear weapons, this is the United States and the Soviet Union in the 50s and 60s. This is Cuba, where tactical nukes were there. This is the argument that was made against the, the, the potential swarm of Soviet motor rifle divisions crossing the Fulda Gap. And yes, let's use the battlefield nukes because that will solve all our problems. Uh, you know, we, we've had decades since then to realize the, the complete ludicrous premise of these ideas. And now they're still now even more so being adopted by the Pakistanis. Um, I can, you know, the Indians, that's a hundred million man military perhaps at some point, but, uh, the idea that you can 
differentiate between strategic and tactical nuclear weapons is, was a pipe dream back 50 years ago. It, now, all of a sudden, it's making a resurgence here in South Asia. It's it, terrifying and interesting from an academic point of view at the same time. Yeah, I'm going to go with more terrifying <laughs> on that one. <laughs> Uh, But regarding the security of the Pakistani arsenal, I think that concerns over weapons in Pakistan being diverted is is overplayed by the media. The United States has worked with the Pakistan with the Pakistani military to ensure that that Pakistan's nuclear arsenal is is safe. And Pakistan also takes the additional precaution of storing its nuclear warheads separate from the delivery systems. So that ensures that a a missile with a nuclear warhead that's ready to go can't be can't be stolen or diverted. In 2012, there were several Pakistani, or there were several attacks by insurgents on Pakistani military bases, uh, some of which were held sort of some of the delivery systems for nuclear weapons. Uh, but the U.S. was fairly clear then that it, it supports the steps Pakistan has taken to increase its, its nuclear security and feels confident that the Pakistani arsenal is secure. Well, it's good to hear. Uh, just, we just don't need a coup anytime soon. <laughs> Certainly not. Uh, so let's talk Iran. Um, and again, someone may be listening to this podcast a year from now. So uh, this is being discussed in real time. The Iran deal from a deal is maybe the wrong word. Maybe that's what the question we need to ask. The framework put in place a couple of days ago of Iran. Let's not be that topical. Let's talk about Iran in general. Uh, the idea of people being as afraid as they are of an Iranian bomb the, the breakout point, how close are they? In my, I mean, I've been following this for a while. Iran's been a year away from a nuclear weapon for two decades. Uh, why now? Is it politics? Is there a reality? Is there, usually this answer is somewhere in the middle, but are the, are the hardliners right? Are those saying, don't worry about it right? Is there a middle ground where we can say, yeah, Iran maybe probably wants a nuclear weapon, but the sanctions relief makes a whole lot more sense at this point. What, what, what's your take on Iran? There is certainly good reason to d- distrust Iran's nuclear intentions. They have lied in the past. They have attempted to construct enrichment facilities covertly. And I believe that the intelligence is strong that they pursued a nuclear weapons program prior to 2003. But what is different now, in part, I think is based on the leadership both in Iran and in the United States. Uh, Both leaders are pragmatic. Uh, The new president of Iran, Hassan Rouhani, is a moderate. He can work within the system. And he wants sanctions relief uh, for for his country. He's a scientist too, isn't he? In background, I believe. I thought there was a science background there to be a little more. That's the where the pragmatism comes from. Yes. No. He has uh, he has a great deal of, of education, uh, and he is surrounded by people who are also very committed to reaching an agreement. But what I think is most important to emphasize in the deal going forward is that it should put in place such intrusive and stringent monitoring and verification mechanisms that the international community can be assured that Iran cannot move towards nuclear weapons covertly in the future. 
because there is, as I said, reason to distrust Iran. So distrust and, and verify, I think, should be the motto going right. forward. Well, let's, you brought the word verification. I think that's kind of the key, you know, the, the underlying point we wanted, I wanted to talk to about during this podcast is that verification is done in several ways. There's, there's overt verification. There's IAEA. There's the international community. There's the United States. Um, but they can only do so much. And this, I think this is where you know, we are at the spy museum. I think this is where the intelligence angle might come and play a role. Um, how much of that verification is going to – I mean you can't – even if you knew, you couldn't say. But how, in, in your experience in arms control overall, how much verification has to be done uh, covertly? How much does the intelligence community play a role in this verification process? Well, in the history of Iran's nuclear program, the intelligence community, uh, intelligence organizations from the United States, uh, other countries in the region, Israel, uh, European countries, have played a critical role in exposing Iran's uh, attempts to covertly build nuclear facilities. The Natanz enrichment facility was discovered in 2002, Fordow, another enrichment facility in 2009. Uh, and this is, it's easier to collect intelligence on Iran than a country, say, like North Korea, that's almost hermetically sealed off from the rest of the world. Uh, Iran is a much more open country, uh, social media, uh, contact with the region, contact with the rest of the world. So that certainly facilitates uh, intelligence gathering. And based on Iran's past, I think that the intelligence communities will continue to keep Iran's nuclear program under a microscope. I mean, in 2007, the director of national intelligence, James Clapper, said that uh, Iran would not be able to divert enough material for a bomb uh, without the international intelligence community being able to detect that. Uh, so you have that, plus the increased overt monitoring that will be put in place by the International Atomic Energy Agency. And I think uh, you could say with a high degree of confidence that Iran will not be able to, to, to covertly build a program. Because we, we haven't been particularly good at this in the past. I... I, I as much love as I have for the American intelligence community, uh, my particular field of history uh, is really looking at this in the failures. I mean, the Soviets, the Chinese, India's, India's program, Pakistani program, we didn't see those coming. Um, and, and I think that is what stokes people's fears is that, uh, you know, we, we predicted the Soviet Union would develop an atomic bomb in 1951, three weeks after they had actually detonated their first atomic bomb. That's a problem. Uh, and certainly China came a little bit out of the blue. I mean, we knew it was coming, but we didn't know when in India and Pakistan. And, and, you know, we'll talk about Iraq in a second, and that's a failure in another way, another direction. Um, but because of all the pro things we've talked about, because of dual use, because of enrichment questions, because of, uh, you know, th these scientific and technological questions that a lot of people just don't understand beyond those, like, especially policymakers and the Congress and the media, um, it does give me second – I mean I, I'm more in line with the way – your way of thinking in that Iran, this deal may work out. But how do you integrate that issue that we've not been particularly good at this in the past uh, into the confidence that you're showing on Iran? Well, I think we have certainly learned lessons from the past the Iraq case in the 90s, uh, the North Korean case have demonstrated that – 
the IAEA inspections mechanisms were not broad enough. The agency didn't have enough access. There needed to be provisions in place to allow inspectors access to areas where they suspected weapons work might take place. Uh, and that has resulted in the development of, of new mechanisms, which will be brought to bear uh, full force on Iran. Uh, Iran has also accepted these mechanisms in a negotiated agreement, which I think differs very much from Iraq when intrusive monitoring and verification was imposed on a country that had been vanquished in war. Right. Uh, so that sort of voluntary agreement to to accept greater transparency, I think, is is important. And it's also worth noting that the technology has improved significantly. Uh, satellite imagery plays an important role in monitoring facilities to see if they if they've expanded, how they have changed. Uh, you can look at things like heat signatures from buildings, and that's important for helping detect the, the presence of, of certain types of reactors that produce weapons-grade materials. Uh, and we have a clearer picture of what types of materials are, can be used for, for these nuclear programs and I think have developed better international networks uh, to track these types of materials. There is a UN Security Council resolution, 1540, that is, requires all countries to take certain measures to, to try and stop the, the, the sale or import or export of, of materials that can be used for these types of WMD programs. Uh, these are all new new technologies, uh, new mechanisms that have come into place uh, since the failures of the past. Well, and I think it's important to, to note that because the perception that the IAEA was, incompetent is the wrong word, but powerless. Uh, I mean, you even see you know, what Team America World Police, the Hans Bricks, and, and that he became almost a caricature of himself during the Iraq and North Korea uh, situations. Um, and so I can see, I don't agree with it, but I can see why the people that are more hawkish about Iran, the people that are more hardline, are, are thinking that this isn't going to work, that they're going to cheat, that they're going to get away with it. Um, is the key at this point educating people about these new measures? I mean, from my perspective, what you talk about with, with the imagery intelligence and the signals intelligence, what we call massent measurements and signature intelligence, like how we've picked up the North Korean test. They were underground, but we used seismic detectors and we were able to pick them up through different means, uh, educating people about our capabilities in a way that they do understand that it's not the same way it's just going to be in the past. Is that really what your organization, what you're trying to do to get that word out about, hey, look, it's not the same old IAEA. It's not the same old arms control system that we can actually make this work this time? Certainly. I think the job for the next three months really is to explain how these mechanisms work, uh, explain how they have been strengthened and improved from the past, uh, to really provide more assurance that we won't be duped by Iran uh, and that the, the IAEA will have the access that it needs. Uh, and also, though, to explain sort of the interplay between these elements. I mean, you mentioned the, the ability to detect North Korea's nuclear test. I mean, that's one monitoring and verification element that has 
grown enormously sort of over the past decade. The, the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty Organization's International Monitoring and Verification System is a technological marvel. Uh, we're talking about a web of seismic monitors, radionuclide detectors, that all send real-time information back to the the organization's headquarters in Vienna so that they can tell by seismic activity if if North Korea has conducted a nuclear test. And what country would want to say that it has a reliable nuclear arsenal if they haven't actually tested a device? There's an extreme level of uncertainty. And if, if a country like Iran chooses to test, the monitoring system will, will pick that up. And then we'll have an even clearer picture of, of Iran's intentions. Now, my last question for you. Beyond North Korea, Iran, the obvious ones that we've talked about, are there any regions of the world or are there any countries that are on the, not the watch list, but the, you know, we want to keep a little bit of an eye on them that, that may be an issue in the future. I mean, 20 years ago, we may not, well, actually 20 years ago, we were probably thinking Iran and North Korea, but let's say 30 years ago, Iran and North Korea may not have been on our radar. Uh, you know, India, Pakistan somewhat came out of the blue. Uh, are there countries in the next 20, 30 years, uh, that, uh, you know, we can't predict geopolitical changes, but let's say we can. Let's say a crystal ball. Uh, what should people be, if they see it in the news, what should jump out at people in the next little while? Where's the next? Hopefully there isn't one, right? I mean, you're, it's your job to make sure there isn't one. But let's say it, it just almost works, but not quite. What, what's the next thing that we need to be paying attention to? Is it Latin America? Is it Sub-Saharan Africa? Do we just not know? Well, I think that there is reason to be concerned about the Middle East. There are a number of countries in the region, adversaries of Iran, that are concerned about an agreement that leaves Iran with what is called a nuclear weapons capability. Uh, Meaning under an agreement, Iran's nuclear program will be limited and it will be highly monitored, but it still essentially will have the technology that could be used in the future to move towards nuclear weapons. A number of countries have said that they're uncomfortable with that. Saudi Arabia, for instance, has indicated that it may decide to pursue a uranium enrichment program of its own and try and reach a similar capability. So not an an overt dash towards nuclear weapons, but a a building up of some of the technical components, ostensibly for a power program, that could then be be used for nuclear weapons. So I think that that Saudi Arabia, other countries in the region, uh, need to be watched. But, But there certainly are policy elements that the United States and other countries could use to try and stem off that threat. Uh, Iran will be subject to some of the most intrusive monitoring and verification that that any country has voluntarily agreed to. Getting other countries to accept similar measures uh, could be a step in the right direction. Could, Could the Iran deal be a framework for everybody? Could it be you can have a peaceful nuclear power program as long as you agree to these parameters? I mean, do you, do you see this being kind of extrapolated across the board? I mean, everybody's not Iran. Everybody is not a, a, a revolutionary state that scares the bejesus out of the rest of the world. But could that be one of these frameworks like, okay, you want to build a nuclear, weapons for, a nuclear power program? Here's what you're going to have to do in the future. I think that the Iranian case could set some new norms for 
restrictions and monitoring that the international community would like to see. Whether or not the IAEA can actually institute that in a number of countries is yet to be seen given the agency's resource constraints. But getting countries to begin voluntarily agreeing to those measures would, could be a step in the right direction. Uh, also, there is a movement towards creating a weapons of mass destruction free zone in the Middle East. Uh, as some of the steps that are taken sort of towards creating that zone, countries in the region could voluntarily commit to, to meeting those requirements. So it could begin perhaps as a, at the regional level and then expand. Uh, it certainly would be nice to, to, to think that countries would be open to greater monitoring and, and transparency. But there are, of course, you know, national security concerns right. that will trump uh, that will trump transparency in, in many instances. So overall, I, I, I lied when I said I had the last question. This is really the last question. <laughs> overall, are we moving in a positive direction when it comes to arms control? I mean, Iran deal notwithstanding, obviously that's a positive direction. But in the general sense of the world, uh, moving toward global zero not just with nuclear weapons, but all weapons of mass destruction, are we moving in the right way? I mean, the president came, President Obama came to office talking global zero. There hasn't been a lot of movement in that direction. The Russians certainly are in no rush to get to global zero. Uh, with current you know, tensions between the United States and Russia, it doesn't look like that we're going that direction. And there's people talking about modernization programs, spending a trillion dollars or so to modernize our nuclear weapons program. Are we moving in the right direction uh, overall, uh, or is there still a ton of? T- are you going to are you going to be employed for a long time because you're going to have great job security moving forward? Well, getting to global zero is a marathon. It's it's not a sprint, and you have to be in it for the long haul. And I certainly think that despite some of the setbacks we've seen recently in U.S. Russia relations the movement towards modernization, the slow pace of disarmament. There is an overarching commitment to secure nuclear material, to reduce uh, the numbers of deployed nuclear weapons, and an even stronger commitment to to stop the spread of nuclear weapons. Uh, And some of the necessary steps are taken behind the scenes. One of the most difficult challenges for disarmament is actually verification. Uh, And the U.S. State Department has recently embarked on a new project towards studying warhead verification, because you certainly aren't going to want to get rid of that last nuclear weapon if you're not assured that uh, your rival hasn't gotten rid of theirs at the same time. Yeah, that would put us in a pretty bad position. Um, (laughs) Kelsey Davenport, the Director of Nonproliferation Policy at the Arms Control Association, thank you for taking the time to come talk to us at the International Spy Museum. Thank you very much for having me. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you. And we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we will see you next month. Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. 
It only takes a few minutes, and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now.